This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. This place gives me the creeps. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey there, my name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome to your Boo Crew Podcast, episode 402. Sincerely hope you're having a great week so far, whenever you may be listening to this. At time of release, spooky season 2023 is well underway. Let us know how you've been celebrating over on our Instagram, at Tales from the Boo Crew. Tell us about your local haunted attractions you've been doing, horror experiences, immersive and otherwise, and the films you've been watching. Give us some recommendations. We're just consuming everything we can at this point, as I know you are too. Just making some recommendations for you here on our end. Run on Hulu. If you haven't seen it, incredible. And no one will save you. That's on Hulu as well. All right. Joining you this week is filmmaker... Oscar and Emmy winning visual effects master, the legendary Phil Tippett. This guy is a true force of nature who has been changing the landscape of cinema since his early creations in the original Star Wars films, like the Imperial Walkers and Jabba the Hutt to Starship Troopers, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, Mad God, and many, many more. One of those franchises that benefited greatly from his genius was the genre classic directed by Paul Verhoeven, RoboCop. On Bloody Disgusting Screenbox, there was a fascinating four-part docu-series available now called RoboDoc, the creation of RoboCop that is one of the best deep dives out of any film we've maybe ever even seen. I don't know about you, but RoboCop scared the hell out of me as a kid at sleepovers and just made me feel uneasy with the ruthless violence and gore effects, the wild sense of humor that was extremely inappropriate for my child mind, and all the heightened elements of science fiction and horror. I hadn't seen anything like it and still haven't to this day. It's a punishing juggernaut of an experience. Phil reminisces about his journey with the series as well as a look into his incredible career bringing the impossible to life. It really was an honor to be able to talk to him. Episode 402 with the iconic Phil Tippett, also the hilarious Phil Tippett, now slang. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. All right, joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is not only a legend, but his achievements have both changed and advanced cinema forever. His influence is really undeniable. Pop culture itself is saturated with it, and he's one of very few creators who has sparked the imagination of every one of us at some point in time. A master of effects animation and the spellbinding art of stop motion. He is the one who brought to life our slices of unforgettable Americana going back to the Pillsbury Doughboy. His unique talents found him heading up George Lucas's ILM Creature Shop where he worked on Star Wars, including blowing our minds with the Imperial Walkers on Empire and designing one of the most memorable villains ever created with Jabba the Hutt, eventually running his own effects house. He's done Joe Dante's Piranha, the Oscar-winning Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the two-time Oscar-nominated Willow, cult classics like Tremors, Starship Troopers, the Twilight films, and his six-time award-winning 30-year masterpiece, Mad God, even earning several Emmys and an Oscar of his very own for making history with overseeing the dinosaur animation for the three-time Oscar-winning Jurassic Park. He is why we go and see movies, the consummate magician who continues to show us 
the impossible and through innovation manifesting the ideas and stories that have truly changed all of our lives for the better. Another one of those very projects is a particularly indelible film created by Paul Verhoeven in 1987. It's a subject of a phenomenal documentary put out by Cineverse and Bloody Disgusting. RoboDoc, the creation of RoboCop. We've been celebrating a new episode each week since August 29th and a time of release. All four episodes are now available on Screenbox. Let's just say it's perhaps the best deep dive in any film we've ever seen. We are honored to welcome special effects master Phil Tippett. Yeah. Hey guys. How you doing, man? All good. Well, thank you so much for uh, our childhood and our child, our children's childhoods. Uh, you're a genius. I wanted to ask you, what was the moment or film that inspired you down this path? Uh, when I was about five years old, in like 19 or 6, 1955 or 6 or so, um, uh, Cooper and Shodensack's production of King Kong was on TV. You know, and back then the screens were really tiny. And, uh, yeah, that, that really, I had no idea what I was looking at. But it, it certainly, you know, was, that was the first um, cinder block that was laid on the foundation and uh and that um drove me uh to um you know be fascinated by dinosaurs from that age on and um so uh my parents and grandparents would you know whatever you know for birthday and christmas would be something dinosaur related and uh then you know i i'm very objective oriented and so uh you know no nobody in my neighborhoods i grew up i was born in berkeley but grew up mostly in uh san diego and there was nobody there that was interested in what i was interested in which was fine with me and uh so i would just get my parents to drop me off at the library on the weekends and just go through every dinosaur thing that i could possibly find so uh, you know, by the time Jurassic came up, I was pretty well rehearsed. I made a couple of, you know, stop motion dinosaur, uh, movies. And, um, and then it was 1957 when Ray Harry Allison's Sinfoy Sinbad, uh, was released. Mm -hmm. And that really galvanized it for me along with practically everybody I know that that orbits the same sphere that I do on that note, like guys like Ray Harryhausen, for instance, they, they kept their cards pretty close to their chest. So how did you go about learning the art of stop motion and creature design when a lot of people weren't talking about it? Well, it was a precipitous climb, you know, because as you say, it's not like today where everything is given away in, you know, in reams, uh, so figuring out what it actually was, you know, my dad said, well, it's, it's kind of like cartoon animation, but with, you know, models, which, eh, what does that mean? Right. And, uh, and then somehow, I don't recall how, I ran across a, an issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Uh, Forey Ackerman was the editor. Yeah. And Forey was a friend of Ray's. And he, you know, published um, articles on, on what Ray did with pictures and whatnot. And that, that's when I began to understand 
you know, what it was all about. Sure, sure. And at that point, what were you sculpting with and how were you capturing these images? Were, were the eight millimeter cameras and, and things like that something that was easily attainable when you were growing up? Well, about, um, hmm, that was probably about 13 or 14 or so. Um, I, how did I do it? I uh, mowed a lot of lawns and saved up enough money to buy a um, eight millimeter stop motion, you know, single frame thing. Yeah. And just would spend, you know, the evenings, you know, trying. I mean, it was, again, like, it was almost like an inverted path or a path that was precipitous like that, but also went like (laughs) upside down. And, uh, so I would, you know, it, it just took me forever to shoot it at an eight millimeter roll. And, uh, then I would send it in to Rochester, New York. And two weeks later, I get it back and it was like, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> and it was, I, I liken it to, um, you know, playing a piano or an instrument and not hearing it for like two weeks and then getting it back. It's <laughs> a great way of like, describing what, it. Yeah. What, what am I doing? Um, and then also uh, what I did was uh, around that time, um, uh, Ray Harry, how uh, seven voices and about 20 million miles to earth and a bunch of Ray's movies came out on eight millimeter. And um, I would talk my friends, when my parents, when my friends' parents would go to Sears, I would talk them into bringing me along. And so I'd go there. I didn't have any money. So I would steal them and, uh, and brought, brought back. And they have like these little, you get them at like the joke shops or wherever at that time. Mm-hmm. And there were these tiny little view screens with a crank on them. Oh, wow. And in that, um, would be like, uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy gag, you know, like a, a 10 second or 15 second gag. Uh, and so I dismantled that and figured out a way of putting my dad's um, audio tape reels together with like with pencils and uh, get Ray's, you know, uh, movies and just go through single frames and then study how he block things out things like that that's incredible leo jump in you had a question bro yeah since uh since the stop motion process is such a time-consuming art form requiring all the patience in the world uh what made you stick with it and uh what was the first test sample of stop motion you captured on film um well i'm very objective oriented you know and if uh I am fascinated by something, you know, I just get on it like ugly on an eight, but it was, you know, it, it was the, um, particularly the sun voyage of Sinbad. It was the, the spectacle of it that, um, you know, enticed me, you know, to be taken to someplace that I never could possibly go, go to. So that was, um, that's what's always for me to do something to do things that were different, mm-hmm. you know, the, or that one had not previously seen. Right. Right. In, in cinema. You're th- the, another aspect of stop motion is your creations 
I mean, they feel so tangible, not only in the intricacy and the detail of their design, but I'm really curious as to your philosophy of imbuing them with personality, which is essential. And you manage to do that each time. What's the, how do you do that? How do you imbue an inanimate object with personality? Well, when I I started out, um, or when I had to do, uh, work professionally, you know, particularly when um, um, Empire fired up, uh, you know, that was, I was not quite ready at that point to, um, to um, execute the, the work to the level that I wanted to, uh, or that it needed to be. And so I um, fortunately had, you know, a, a great deal of uh, uh, time uh, while this island was being set up and we were getting things put together and some of the processes took a long time. And um, Dennis Mirren found like one of the first real to real stop motion recorders. And so I would just spend hours and hours and hours every day. We had a mock-up of uh, Tauntaun and um, uh, Imperial Snow Walker. So I would just practice and practice and practice. And and it's very much like learning to ride a bike. You know, you kind of like flatline. You know, you're you're able to get it up. Mm -hmm. You're able to make it move. And that's it (laughs) for like a long time. And then all of a sudden, bink, it just goes up. It's like, bonk. And, you know, I, that's happened to me a number of times with different different things. And uh, it's just, you know, like the you know, urban myth of the 10,000 hours. It's just like just putting in the time, you know. And then, uh, oddly enough, it's just like all of a sudden you just get it, yeah. you know. And then in terms of design or, or actual character, um, what I would do initially, you know, when I was starting out with those shows, like, you know, uh, Empire and Dragon Slayer, um, I would make tons of notes and um, a, like a telephone book. I mean, just some really thick books on like, you know, um, you know walk cycles and looking at how dragon slayer reptiles would be or we'd go out and shoot um edward moybridge style um 35 millimeter um, uh, shots of uh elephants in a wild animal park so we could get them to from different angles and just look at that and analyze that and then by the time um uh it, it it came to shoot you know i'd really done all my homework over, you know, you know, months and months and months, and then just, you know, got rid of that and just, just started. And then for the character designs, you know, I've just been doing that since I was a kid. And, um, and for, um, the Star Wars chess set, um, Joe Johnson and John Berg were, you know, we were down in, uh, I was living in Silver Lake and John and I were living in Silver Lake and, Joe was out in the valley and they were working together on um, figuring out the um, mechanics for the the walkers. And uh, 
Joe put George in touch with me. And um, the only feature film that I'd worked in up until that time was Piranha. And uh, and so um, Joe was the you know facilitator, and he, he said George wanted to you know see some designs for this. They call it a um, snow lizard, Tauntaun. It's like what the fuck? What do you mean? <laughs> that ain't gonna happen. And so I, I spent a couple of days just doing. Uh, drawings you know maybe like 20 years you know so drawings you know it could be this it could be that it could be this it could be that you know i wasn't you know beholden to anything you know i, I was just like interested in what what it could possibly be sure and um so i sent those off to george and he selected one and asked me to make him a cat for it and that was that that's incredible. And I got to say, Empire, I mean, just experiencing the scope and scale of those yeah. Imperial walkers it was just overwhelming as a kid. I mean, that was a transformative experience to be sitting in the theater. And there was nothing that could convince me that those and the Tauntauns and the Yadats, that there weren't actual objects that moved in the real world. What was the biggest challenge of giving us that experience and providing that gravity and fluid sense of motion that I'd never seen in stop motion before. I mean, these look like giant practical creatures to me. Well, let me back up a bit. I mean, that, that particular scene for interest instance, and even, you know, like the ton, ton scenes, you know, we use painted backings that Michelangelo uh, Bengrazio executed. And, um, because when George shot the background plates for the, uh, um, his movies, unless there was a specific thing with an uh, actor, he would just have the second unit go out and, and shoot. And so that's just kind of a grab bag of stuff like, well, okay, we could use this or we could use that. But um, Dennis really wanted to have more flexibility in that. And we'd done a, a number of uh, blue screen composites with some stuff. And it was like, eh, you know, and um, and so what that that did was it took things to storybook isn't the right term, but like an alternate universe, you know, a, a designed universe, not something that was, you know, you know, taken with the camera, but something that was composed, you know, to live in its own world. So that I always felt. Um, you know, reality is a material thing and everything is real. I mean, not everything, but, um, but if you can create your own universe, um, and get people to buy it by, um, dramatic staging, writing, choreography, what, what, you know, whatnot. As long as you articulate it um, properly, people just buy into it, mm -hmm. you know. And particularly, you know, the first shot's very important. If, if you get the audience to go, what the fuck? Um, you got them. Do you remember the first time you saw something that you created on the big screen and how that made you feel? Mm, 
I can imagine it must be overwhelming to see something that you made. No, I mean, it was just such, you know, a slow, you know, road that it's like the frog in the boiling water. You know, it was just, <laughs> you know, I didn't even feel the temperature going out. You know, no, yeah, it was, uh, you know, until, like I was saying, or, you know, like when, once you hit those high watermarks and you realize, oh, I get it. Um, yeah, that's pretty much the, how things lay down. Right, right. When do you first remember computers advancing to the point where it started to become a tool in the process? Uh, Dennis had kept me um, informed. You know, uh, the first things that they, well, uh John Lasseter and Ed Campmill and all those guys, you know, um, Pixar started up at, um, at um, Lucasfilm. And I think the first time I saw anything was something that Pixar had done for one of the Star Trek movies. Some It, it was a visualization of something. It wasn't supposed to be a realistic scene, but it would But it, it, like, was, oh, that's really interesting pictorially. And then Dennis, um, when it came to doing young Sherlock Holmes, the, the jobs requirement with the stained glass guy was like, well, how are you going to do stop motion? I don't know. I could kind have of figured it out, but it would have been pain in the ass. Sure. <laughs> and, and, but Dennis was always very good at like, you know, glomming on to like the the newest thing and seeing you know kind of pushing its parameters and so he would call me in uh to you know for second opinions and you know what do you think well it could be this and could be that and maybe if you move you know um and then so he kept me apprised of what was going on through um you know i I guess it was the second terminator Mm -hmm. uh, whatever i forgot and of course, then it came to Jurassic, and you know, big breakthrough occurred, and uh, that was that. Yeah, off to the races. What do you think has driven you over the course of your career to, I don't know, adapt and embrace those changes versus remaining a purist and saying, you know, what, know what, I'm not, I'm not even going to go there. Well, the last thing I am is a purist. You know, it's just I, I share Dennis's. Um, well, that's not completely accurate. Um, computer graphics did two things. You know, one, it um, for for quite some time, it really destroyed everything. You know that that I had learned to do and, and love. So that that initially on Jurassic was a huge. I got very depressed, got pneumonia, had to be in bed for a couple of weeks, you know, because I just thought it was the end of the world. But I, I emotionally overreacted. And, um, you know, Stephen was, you know, I mean, I didn't even think about it, but I was a guy that knew all about dinosaurs and the latest theories. I knew the production process. So who else are you going to hire? Mm-hmm. You know, I knew how to make these things move. And so, you know, that worked out. And, 
Where were we? I forgot. No, that's it's perfect. What as far as like learning how to bring your craft into the digital world, was that something that was frustrating or did you find that it came pretty easily to you once you got inside? Well, that was the you know, the other thing. I mean, um there are two aspects for it. One was the um device that we built to do the the um uh Raptor Kitchen and the um, uh Tyrannosaurus paddock. Um so uh, there was that and then um I am technologically when it comes to anything that's not analog, I'm like a moron. And uh but I didn't have to endure, you know, training myself or learning Maya or whatever. And um got kicked upstairs, you know, because I, I knew stuff, mm-hmm. particularly on Jurassic, the uh um just about all the trained animators were um from Sheridan College in, in Canada. And they had um been trained to do like Disney S cartoon uh, squash and stretch type stuff or flying logos and they just didn't have the experience. Sure. To, you know, they've, they've never been experienced, uh, you know, have any experience, you know, going on location and shooting and understanding what the water weight of the uh, thing was and how to imbue the thing with intention and and all of that. So, you know, it was it was a no brainer. Mm-hmm. They were unhappy that Dennis chose me to be the supervisor, but they did not have any idea what they didn't know. So exactly, exactly. Yeah, they needed a pilot to, to steer the ship. But, but, but it it um, sorted itself out. You know, uh, um, uh, Craig Hayes engineered these uh, input devices, you know, that were essentially stop motion armatures that had encoders on them that would feed into the computers. So, you know, Randy Dutra and Tom Santamon could animate them and they would you know, go into the computer and ILM would render them. And that, um, that was the, um, melted the glacial divide between, you know, the analog stop mo and computer graphics. Um, in that the way that the Canadian guys had been trained, there was a function on the um, on the computer side called a function curve, and each joint, you know, like say if you're uh, bending your elbow and then like you know twisting it, and you start ninety degrees and you go um, forty five, those are called rotations. Each of those moves is a rotation. And that's plotted on a, on a graph or a line for each limb. And so it, it looks like the London Underground. And, um, you know, you just get all these, you know, parallel wavy lines like, like this. And that is an analytical tool that you can use to um, alter, you know, um, how the things move and speed and whatnot. Uh, and they generally did it in terms of key framing, um, you know, you, you know, which is how traditional animators are, are, are taught, mm-hmm. you know, and <clears throat> so uh, that's what the, um, we call it the 
DID, the dinosaur input device. And Tom and Randy would animate that one frame at a time. And then we'd send that over to ILM and they would process it. And their engineers were apoplectic and they said, well, this whole thing doesn't work. You know, it's, it's the whole engineering and everything was poorly conceived and it's just not going to work. And it was like, did you guys even bother looking at the shot? And it was like, no, we just looked at the function curve. Wow. And what the, the difference in the function curves were was the, the ILM guys were completely smooth, you know, because and kind of aesthetic looking even. And, and that's how they had been trained. But saying if you're going to throw a tennis ball, um, when you when you do all the moves to make a tennis ball, there are so many things going on that you, you you can't, your brain can't cope with it if yeah. you tried to analyze it. And um, so that has to be understood. And to achieve that understanding on an intuitive level, it just means doing it over and over and over. Certainly, you know, the um, uh, being able to sculpt is, is very helpful sure. because you're, you're working on poses and gravity and all the time. So you can visualize <laughs> that. So um, then they realize, yeah, and then the, the function curves would be like just totally <laughs> broken. Yeah. And then that's what, you know, led them to not knowing what they were looking at. Right. <laughs> exactly. The Boo Crew will be right back. Last year, audiences everywhere thrilled to a terrifying film about the horrors of home ownership. House. Now, there's an all-new house. Looks like you got some kind of alternate universe in there or something. With brand new owners. Charlie. Got it. And it's getting weirder. Look, it's a prehistoric bird. I've seen enough tragedy and disaster to make you want to upchuck in your shorts. Two friends inherit a fantastic house. Charlie, there's a jungle in there. And a 170-year-old mummy. Surprise! Who is this? You can call me Gramps. They're in for more trouble than they ever imagined. You can kick the door open, run in there blindly, and I'll cover you, okay? Guy with the big gun goes first. House 2, a second story. This place gives me the creep. back up and, and kind of get into RoboCop, but I first wanted to talk about a particularly wild notch in your filmography actually came out the same year RoboCop did, and that was Ethan Wiley's House 2, which is like a Scooby-Doo haunted house come to life with dinosaurs and creatures of all kinds. What do you remember about that experience? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> no, it was, it, it, it was a job, yeah. you know, and so I took, you know, everything that came my way, and that was one of them, I, I honestly, 
Was that the one with the rotting horse and the guy? And yeah, and there's the pterodactyls and stuff. There's a whole dinosaur segment that oh, all yeah, living yeah, in the yeah, house. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. No, that, that was a low watermark. <laughs> I, I loved it. it I loved it. So fun. Yeah, it's so fun. What about? Uh, okay, uh, another one before we get into RoboCop that I loved was 1999's The Haunting. I got to say, probably one of the most stunning sets on film that I might have ever oh, seen. Oh, definitely. Yeah, Eugenio, Eugenio uh, Leonetti's sets and his set director Tommaso. It was it was a pleasure to work with those guys. You know, you don't get any better than that. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? But you like that movie? Oh, I loved it. Do, do you remember anything in particular? Any sequence that you put together on that one that you were really proud of? No. <laughs> no, I hated the movie. Really, <laughs> really. How old were you when you saw it? Gosh, uh, I mean, I'm 47 now. Probably you saw it when it came out. So how old? My 20s. Oh, you were old enough to know better. <laughs> he loves anything with like an old yeah, house. Anything with like an old style anything. house. Oh, well, and, that doesn't count. And that house is crazy with the giant fireplace and all the cherubs and their heads are moving. Did you do that? The moving cherubs? Yeah, the studio did. Yeah, I loved it. I um, loved it. Yeah, you know, Jan didn't really know what he was doing. You oh, know? it was awesome. And, well, it wasn't scary. Sure, Joe, it, it didn't really play off as a horror movie, but it kind of played off as like a waking fever dream, which I thought was really, there's something to that, you know? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get into RoboCop. And uh, again, from my personal experience, that was the movie that became the VHS rental my middle school sleepovers were built on. That was the first time I ever gagged during a movie is when Ed 209 shot up the boardroom. It was the most shocking thing I had ever seen uh, in the dock. John Davison says that he doesn't think anyone had a good time while they were working on that picture and they were pretty much calling in favors. What was that like from your vantage point? How were you first approached? Was it as miserable as John Davison says it was? Well, not for me. Yeah. You know, I, I was, you know, involved with three scenes. So, you know, I, I did not have the exposure that everybody else did to the situation, which was actually grueling for a number of reasons that are exposed in the, in the doc. But, um, you know, Paul didn't know anything about uh, visual effects at that time. And, uh, he loved Ray Harryhausen movies and all that. So he knew what stop motion was, understood the process. But um, so I'd be helpful in, um, you know, for instance, the boardroom scene, the fir- first scene, you know, I proposed to him that we make a... Um, the Craig, actually Craig Hayes designed and built that 209. And uh, we built a full, Craig built a full scale prop and then we'd switch out the shots between. Um, I, I definitely didn't want to do any like blue screen shots. Um, I really wanted to limit the blue screen shots we had to do. I think I did almost to like one. Wow. And um, have everything be on set. So we'd swap out for um the dialogue scenes um dick jones the dialogue scenes where ed comes in and and sets down you know with the ambulatory stuff would be stop motion and then you'd cut to uh then that would shut down you cut to the the uh the big prop and so i proposed that to paul that we keep ed alive by um 
kind of like this deep bass pedal note. So his presence is always, you know, in the, uh, it's like an ominous presence that that's always there. And so Paul was always very good. You know, if you, if you had an idea, well, all of these guys were, and that's what they're looking for is like, you know, you're approaching it from a different position that they are. And they know what they have to do. And it's primarily um, the kinds of scenes they want, camera moves, action. Um, but they can't completely, I mean, this isn't 100% true, but there is an aspect of truth to it because they're working out the storyboards and they know that you know, kind of what they want. But, um, you know, I have a, a somewhat different perspective on, on the whole thing. So I can come in and uh, say, what if we do this? What if we do that? You know, everything's proposed in a bunch of, uh, you know, what if. So, uh, you know, and they'll go like, oh, great. That's a good idea. Or, eh, no. But I had a, I had a really, um, I established a very good relationship with, uh, with Paul on, on that movie. You know, when we concluded the boardroom scene, you know, I said, uh, can I have a word with you? And we went, we went over to the, to the, you know, OCP blood splattered model and he put his head down and go, I suppose you're going to tell me how fucked up I am. <laughs> like everybody else. And, no, I gotta, um, I'm done here for now. And I got to go back to my studio and start preparing for the boardroom scene. He goes like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so, and that was pretty much, you know, everything. If it was like, um, any proposal that uh, made sense to him. And, and most of my proposals did. Um, you go, okay. And that was pretty much it. That's great. Now, this might be a really rudimentary question, but what? how do you bring something from the stop motion world and combine it into the real world like you did in that boardroom scene? Are we looking at a complete miniature background that you make, too? Did you make a miniature boardroom and have the stop motion animatronic in that in that world and then it's combined? Some? How does that work? Uh, we shoot photographic background plates. Got it. And I shot, um, uh, no, I, I, I conferred with, um, the DP, Yosvacano. And what I wanted to do was use, um, this division, um, um, shoot, shoot the, um, ed material in this division. So we had, um, a big frame. So, uh, this division is a wide format like this, but um, it, the film's going to be projected in um, 35, and so that's a much you know smaller format. And so you're uh, you're getting a lot less grain in that, and a much higher fidelity picture that that matches the thing, and uh, so use that and then we use the um big ed to we would wheel that in and use that for lighting reference and then wheel it out and shoot the background oh, it's magic leo you had a question about ed 209 yeah were there any big challenges in bringing the ed 209 scale model to life size for that boardroom scene 
that was all on Craig. You know, I was like when, you know, I was doing Howard the Duck. Or starting on Empire, we go over to this guy, Pete Ronzani, who was a, a designer, and he uh, worked on um, the, the with Nilo, wrote us the, the costumes for Return of the Jedi and, and whatnot. But he had another um, thing where he would do designs for the military and whatnot. And Craig was working for, Craig Hayes was working for him. And he was like around 19 at the time. And people would have these barbecues and, you know, that's where I met Craig and he brought in some model parts that, you know, he had been working on like of the Imperial snow walker and stuff. He's like a fan, but he was the most brilliant person I have met along the way in terms of capability of visualizing something and then also visualizing the process by which it needed to be done. So, um, I mean, he, he designed the Ed 209 and he and, uh, his girlfriend at the time, uh, Paula built this thing, wow. you know, over in Pete's, um, space, uh, in San Rafael. And it was like a hundred degrees and they had to wear like, plastic coverings because they're are they used like fiberglass chop and oh everything so they're oh like no. stewing in their own juices yeah and uh anyway yeah that that's how you know that happened so uh, that was pretty much the, the process were you able to keep anything from that production yeah i kept the ed 209s oh that's <laughs> no, no i still have um uh, John gave John Davison gave Craig uh, the the Ed Two Hundred Nine prop, and I still have that up in my studio. You oh. know, and then I gave we had two Ed Two Hundred Nines. I gave one to Craig, and then um, I sold an auction off a bunch of my memorabilia to uh, pay for Mad God. That's that. I mean, hey, it's amazing that uh, that your fans get to uh, carry on that legacy and, and be able to hold on to that stuff as well. Does that make you feel good? No. <laughs> no, I just I just like a good capitalist. I wanted to turn trees into dollar bills. Sure, sure. No, no, makes so. sense, man. Makes sense. And, and you know, like I was saying, you know, it was just like with the the chess set drawings. Is it, it was like I'm I am not emotionally tied to stuff sure i i never look back i only look forward you know so i i just clear everything out in my in my mind so you know it doesn't have the same uh nostalgic value to me as it does to the people at my studio you know when they see stuff starting to disappear they go like oh are we going out of business and like no i just you know then I, I don't need them. Right, right. Yeah. I wanted to ask when RoboCop is interacting with the Ed 209 in the frames where he battles it, did you have to make a stop motion RoboCop or was that done with the life-size scale model near the end? Well, there was, there was only one shot that required that. Um, and I felt that I, it was, let's see, it was the, the boardroom scene after uh, Ed knocks uh, Robo, you know, uh, from the board um, from the uh, Dick Jones office out of the hallway, and you know he lands up against the wall, and 
Robo has to grab uh, uh, the Ed's Ed's gun and push it out of the way or whatever, and Ed shoots his other arm off. And uh, and because the interaction was such and so specific, and the angle was so odd, uh, I did not want to shoot that green screen, so uh, or blue screen. And so Randy Dutra sculpted a in scale miniature um, Robo, and we could get away with it because the shot was so short. Yeah, the thing was, this was, this was a tiny thing that was really near the lens, but there was so much going on, and it was pretty much you know in shadow because it was standing. Was being blocked by Ed that you could get away with it. Nobody noticed. Oh yeah, it looks fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I thought that was done in the life size. It's great. It's great. But that, that was the only only one. And then moving into RoboCop two, possibly the most elaborate stop motion puppet I've ever seen. In Kane, he's got tons of servos. That thing that pops out of his head that kind of screens so many moving parts and he's massive. Can you tell us a little bit about Kane and the challenges and bringing that thing to life? Well, that again was Craig, you know, I mean, he had the ability to just, you know, he had the big picture of what, what that could be. Yeah. You know, and it was like the way I, I operate, I, I don't micromanage people. You know, if, if they know what they're doing, I just let them, let them go. But, you know, I, as the thing was being developed, you know, it was like, do we really know what we're doing? Why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I trusted him and, you know, he made a uh, very memorable, probably one of the most cool, you know, uh, Robot designs for a piece of shit movie for me. <laughs> Did you guys get a hand in in designing the Robo flops? Like the guy who takes his helmet off and is a screaming skull. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the stop motion stuff. In fact, I have a bit part. I don't think you see my face, but there's a shot where Ed Two Hundred Nine has his foot stuck down the man a manhole. Yeah, and, and I'm the. Uh, I am the the you know truck driver that's going to pull him out. You know, you know, having the truck come back. Yeah, oh, that's great. So, how did your collaboration in kind of shorthand, I guess, and skills evolve with Verhoeven moving into Starship Troopers? What kind of evolution entered into your craft during the creation of that and bringing these bug battles to life? Well, after after Robo, he trusted me. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, and it was the same thing. You know, it was like I brought whatever ideas I had to to the table. And Paul and I were <clears throat> pretty much in sync, you know. I mean, I mean, all of us were. I mean, even though these guys were like, you know, like George and Stephen and, and Paul, like five, ten years older than, we, uh, than my gang was at the time, uh, we'd all grown up on the same movies. You know, and mostly watched them at first on TV and then they were being, you know, revived. So we had the same language. And so it was very, it was not um, difficult to to communicate at all. In, in fact, in a lot of ways, it was kind of a Vulcan mind mill mm. thing. You know, I mean, occasionally um, 
you know, someone would say, oh, this is a low angle Kubrick shot. And okay. You know, so it was just that, that kind of, you know, thing that artists do, you know, yeah. it's just, they, they know the nomenclature of, uh, you know, it's, um, cerulean blue mixed with, uh, <clears throat> you know, a dollop of yellow or whatever, you know, so. And in 2021, the world got to finally experience your magnum opus, Mad God. What are some of the ways that that journey affected you in the end, has changed you? The, the Phil Tippett that we got now after after going through the journey of Mad God. Um, well, I had to go to college because of the Vietnam War, I had to get a student deferment. And I wanted to launch right into, you know, working, you know, in the industry, there were, you know, jobs available doing TV commercials in Hollywood. But um, the war precluded that. And I just happened to be going, went to UC Irvine with uh, the conceptual art movement. Yeah. And that really opened my eyes because it was no longer were you tied artistically to painting and sculpture and, you know, whatever. The idea was important. And how that idea was manifested was in the best way that you could imagine or figure out to articulate that. So the idea drove everything. You know, it, it wasn't like it was Marcel Duchamp said, the painters are, are drawn to painting because they like the, the smell of linseed oil. I mean, it's, it's like a drug, you know, and of course Duchamp was, you know, really the progenitor of conceptual art. And so that really opened my eyes and, and I, that really led me to, um, it added, added value to what I had to uh, give to these other productions because I was very idea-oriented. I always had ideas, you know, all the time, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, so that was a huge help. I don't know if that answered the question or not. No, no, for sure, for sure. I want to say that in 2023, over the past several years, we've seen – a renaissance, a bit of a renaissance in the art of stop motion and practical effects. There's even a bit of a backlash against CGI. I would say a very big backlash against CGI. I don't know if there's a backlash, you Can know, think? I think it, 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 you know, it took um, generation ish to come around um, where the, uh, um, Guillermo del Toro, Ryan Johnson, John Favreau, who grew up on all of these things like you, you know, had a soft spot in their heart for it. And when it um, went away, you know, they found themselves in a position to be able to, you know, bring it back, right. you know, and, um, uh, and then, you know, uh, they were the only ones that brought it back in the, um, you know, more conventional Ray Harryhausen zone. Whereas, you know, um, you know, Henry Selleck on and on and on to, you know, Pinocchio stayed in more of that childlike, like realm. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, 
Yeah, it took a while to, to grow back. And it, it, it was in, in fits and starts. You know, some of those things made money. A lot of them did not. And uh, I think it's only Leica now that's doing – well, there's a, there's a number of animation stop-motion studios up in uh, Portland. Um, but most of them, I believe, are working for Leica because the – Dad is a billionaire, and they don't have to make a profit. <laughs> As <laughs> it goes. <laughs> do you have any advice or words of wisdom for artists that want to get into stop motion? Well, the first question is to ask yourself why, you know. Um, but then if you're the sort of person who... Um, doesn't ask yourself why, then you stand a chance. You know, um, if you're if you're just compelled to 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 do it, you will find a way. Um, that God, um, two volunteers. Uh, one was a college student, the other was a friend of the uh, composer Dan Wool, who did the score for Mad God. Um, wanted to volunteer. And uh, and so the best way of uh, and how I learned is um, you know by just watching the, the you know person who knows more stuff than you do, and eventually you know it, it rubs off. But you find your own language and your own style. So Rhea and David became you know really terrific stop motion animators, and uh, now they have their own company. But. Um, and they, they refused to work on computers at all. Wow. And uh, so, um, it you know, it, um, it's much more difficult now, but I was very lucky back in the day because nobody really did what I did. There was just a handful of people, you know, I mean, like six. And most of those guys were screwballs, you know. So, uh, and they, they, all they wanted to do was be Ray Harryhausen. And it was like, why? Why? And um, uh, so, uh, I don't know. I forgot what we were talking about. My mind went someplace else. No, you hit it. You hit it perfectly. Leo, you had another question, man. Yeah, since you mentioned uh, Guillermo del Toro and his uh, Pinocchio movie, I was just thinking with all the you know the, all the improvements uh, with computer graphics uh, automation over the years, does stop motion still have a place in live action film special effects sequences? Well, Ryan Johnson and John Favreau think so. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it really really does depend on you know the. You know, like Christopher Nolan likes, um, the, you know, to work with miniatures. I mean, it really just depends on who the 800-pound gorilla is, you know, behind the show and what they're. And then also the um, the studio, you know, what the, you know, st a lot of the, you know, studio execs and whatnot, you know, for a while there, they didn't even know what CGI meant. They were, we're going to do it with CGI. And... You know, of course, that was, you know, I, 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 you know, was a gig worker all those years and didn't, you know, I just waited for the phone to ring, you know, because it was ideal situation. 
I could work, earn money, take time off, work on my own stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, so that was, uh, you know, that was really a, uh, you know, I was very lucky. But now, you know, it's turned into a huge industry where there's just, uh, you know, all of these schools that are doing this stuff. And, uh, you know, I've worked for some studios that um, were beauty the bill condon's beauty and the beast he did for disney was an example of um uh bill and uh the production designer and the the makeup guy wanted us to do um we we all wanted to, we knew what the right thing to do was was to have the best makeup possible to be the beast so the interactions with the beauty you know with you you what you want in those situations is to get lightning in a bottle mm-hmm you know, in the performances, but it was like you, the, the studio is like, eh, you know, uh, computer graphics are hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, they go, well, did you see the, you know, new planet of the apes movie? Um, and I went like, yeah, you know, the apes were great in that, but, uh, Gary Oldman was a for shit actor in that movie and he's not a for shit actor. And he, it was in interviews and he, you know, said, how can I, how can I even think about performing when I'm watching a goofball with the yeah. you know, green suit and, you know, golf balls attached to him prancing around. And, uh, and we're like, Oh, okay. Well, what are your examples? So, you know, whatever you want to do. And um, I said, Charles Lawton and the Hunchback of Notre Dame and John Hurt and the Elephant Man. I don't even know if they'd seen those things. And if they had, it didn't make any difference because, you know, oh, oh, <laughs> the argument. Well, that means the actor would have to get up at like four o'clock in the morning and get the makeup on and uh, have to be in it all day and eat his lunch. And it was like, you are. And, uh, and, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you know, they, you know, they stopped talking to me and Bill called me up and said, they, you know, got you from the program. And I, well, you know, what did they say? They said that we didn't think that he would work within our system, which is absolutely true, you know. But, but what they wanted to do was uh, kick things upstream. Um, and as the thing got closer and closer, um, you know, uh, put all the onus on the uh, computer graphics companies that were doing the work. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes, I don't know if this just naturally happens, but the visual effects companies become the goat yeah. for a number of reasons at the end and become, uh, you know, the sacrificial lamb for why the thing is going over budget and whatnot. So, you know, for an executive, you know, does that sound like something an executive would do? You know? So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for his, I, I have not seen any element of CGI that hasn't just been used to augment or as a tool that can match anything created in a practical sense at all. I mean, you, just, you, you sense the 
lack of gravity and the and the the way it exists in space in the space just feels off. And I well, I perceive well, that then, people are noticing that more. Well, and then that movie, you know, also was it looked like crap the work they did and the fucking thing made a billion dollars. Right. So and that's all that matters in the in the grand scheme of things, right? You know. Yeah. You yeah. can't argue, you know. That said, would you ever consider working on another feature film again? I know you've you've done stuff with Favreau and Mandalorian and you know more recently so in the TV world, would you consider feature film work again? Not personally in that um I just got tired of going on location sure. being away from home all, all that time um no but I, I i like working for you know john and ryan you know because that's all more more studio based and a lot of that is uh you know i've got you know uh, uh, other animators and model makers that do this stuff so i've kind of been there done that and now there's a new generation that's a lot more uh, accomplished than I, I ever was, you know, um, because they've been able to, you know, use uh, the new technology where the turnaround is not like, you know, years and years and years and years, they get immediate feedback. They know what the processes are. Um, and so there, uh, and there's new materials. So they're, they're a lot more accomplished than, uh, you know, coat hangers and, it's the good stuff though man it's the good stuff all right well we'll let you go thank you so much for your time i mean everyone listening you got to revisit go out and revisit all the robocop films and even the fred decker the the number three check that out that's a that's an underrated classic in my my book and watch robodoc on screenbox it's fantastic also you got to do your due diligence and experience mad god and this marvelous documentary on Phil's life and work called Mad Dreams and Monsters. That's free on Tubi, so you have no excuse. It's required viewing. All right, Phil, thank you so much for your time and continued legacy. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 402. Thank you to our guest, Phil Tippett, and thank you for your time and attention. We are incredibly humbled by it. At time of release, you can see RoboDoc, the creation of RoboCop on Bloody Disgusting's Screambox. Production tracks for this episode provided by the good folks at Powerman 5000. Till next time, for myself, Lauren, and Leo, it is your Boot Crew saying, Sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.